Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today, we have a very special guest, Muzzy Rosenblatt, who's the CEO and president of Bowery Residence Committee, BRC a nonprofit organization committed to bringing stability and dignity to nearly 10,000 homeless and at-risk individuals each year in New York City. Before that, he spent more than a decade in New York's municipal government, culminating his service as acting commissioner of the Department of Homeless Services. He also is the co-author of a new book, How 10 Global Cities Take on Homelessness, that's coming out this May. Thanks for joining Banter, Buzzy. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you. This is a great joy, Phoebe, to have Muzzy Roosevelt, one of my heroes. This is a hero of mine, and it's also a big exception for banter. We normally only have AI scholars, but we'll make an occasional exception for very special people, and we've made that for Muzzy because he, along with other old friends of mine, Linda Gibbs, Jay Bainbridge, and Tamaru Mamu, have come out with a new book, How 10 Global Cities Take on Homelessness. But before we get to discussing the book, to you, Phoebe, and to our listeners, why Muzzy is a hero of mine. Mm -hmm. And so you live here in Washington and you probably walk out of our building and walk over to Connecticut Avenue and you probably pretty much every day you do that, you might see someone on the street, maybe a tent, people's living on the street, people struggling on the street. And you probably say to yourself, who's helping those people? Who's helping these Americans? And I'll tell you who is. Muzzy is. For years, for 20 years. And then before that, working for the city of New York and addressing people that struggle in a tough part of America, in New York City. And he does it every day for people who really need. He knows more about street homelessness than anybody I know. So that's something that makes him a hero from from my standpoint. So Muzzy, how's it going? What's happening in street homelessness in New York City these days? And why are you doing it better or well and others aren't? Well, it is great to be with you, my old friend. And thank you for those over-the-top compliments. You, too, are a hero of mine since our years together working in city government, a practitioner you are as well as a scholar. And so it is a great privilege of mine to be here. You know, we are into year two of this horrible pandemic that has challenged us all. And that has definitely made the work that we do that much more complex and challenging, but also created opportunities to innovate. We, of course, are dealing with homelessness on the front lines in the subways and the streets. We run treatment and shelters. We take a very holistic approach to homelessness at BRC. We, we see it not simply as a housing challenge, but as a, a challenge that individuals face who don't have homes, but also struggle with access, continuity in health care, behavioral health, mental illness and addictive disorders, economic challenges, poverty, and very much kind of a challenge of individuals who have been discharged from so many other systems, from foster care to prisons to the healthcare system without a lot of planning. And they wind up on our streets and on our, on our subways and in and our parks and public spaces. And that's always been the case. And I was, you may not have noticed this article on Harper's in March, because it was in March of 1956, <laughs> called The Subways Are for Sleeping. And if you read it, and you can still read it, and it actually turned into a Broadway musical that won a Tony, I won't even begin to figure out that trick. That's amazing. It's true. It's true. Right. And so for decades, this challenge of people who fall between the cracks where the systems have failed the people, they failed us as communities, as citizens, and they failed the people who are the most vulnerable, the most fragile, 
but what is so to me inspiring about the work every day and for all these years and why I still do it is, and this is something I've heard you speak about before, Robert, is recognizing the ability of the individual, their, their agency, their resiliency if given the right tools and the opportunity to transform their lives. And that is fundamentally what we've always been doing is recognizing that there are these systems failures and helping people navigate their way back into the mainstream, back into stability in their lives, back into good health and into homes and jobs. So that has been going on not only in New York for decades, but where, where the Harper's article came, comes from, but has been going on in cities across our country and around the world. And as you noted, the book that's coming out, How 10 Global Cities Take on Homelessness, was really a privileged opportunity to work with the Bloomberg Associates team and cities that are facing the same challenges and are actually beginning to make progress. So I look forward to talking about that. Yeah, so we're going to get to that in a minute, but I just want you to lay the groundwork a little bit, and I could be wrong, but when people ask me about homelessness, I always start out by saying, well, you have to know there are different kinds of people in the homelessness system, and the numbers Mm -hmm. we use to count them are different depending on where they fall. And the one divide I make, it's not divide, I'm not trying to divide people, but is between families, single parents mm-hmm. often with children who need housing assistance and end up in the shelter system, and single individuals, who, which is what most Americans see on the street is usually a single individual, often a male, more often than a female. And they are, they, at least in my mind, Muzzy, they sound more like who you, you were talking about when you talked about people falling through the cracks and coming out of other systems. Am I right about that? I mean, and is that what your focus is more on the singles population? And is that a fair sort of dividing up of the population of who face homelessness? Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. There are a few other subsets of homelessness population. Runaway youth is a small part, but not insignificant. Adult families who don't have children. But fundamentally, what most people who walk the streets of our cities encounter are single individuals who are living unsheltered. And it, BRC started there. We, BRC stands for, as we said at the beginning, Bowery Residence Committee was a committee of residents, of people, TS, not CE, buildings don't make committees, of course, <laughs> um, that lived on the Bowery, New York City's Skid Row, in lodging houses, in flop houses, in, in cubicles, basically. Think of an office cubicle, shrink it down to four feet by six feet, put some chicken wire over the top and the door on the opening, and that's how people lived. And it was marginalized despair pervaded with illness and addiction and poverty. But we started there with individuals who believed and wanted an opportunity to do better, who hadn't yet achieved their best version of themselves. And that is, I think, still very much the case. Just it has now been dispersed across our country and across our cities, both in central business districts and in under highway overpasses. I mean, one thing to appreciate is, and I've been, you know, out to many of the cities that we covered in the book, Los Angeles, and as well as San Francisco and Mexico City and Athens, Greece, and Washington, D.C., for sure, is New York City, as, as you know, has, and has had for decades, a right to shelter. And so about 90% of those experiencing homelessness in New York City are living in transitional housing programs, many of them, as you know, families with children who, who we never see on the streets, thankfully, because we don't want to see children at risk. But yet we have several thousand, last count in New York was just over 3,800 a year ago, 
point in time count, one cold night in January as is required by the federal government every year, who are voting with their feet, even though in New York they have a right to shelter, and saying, I don't want to exercise my right. You know, in cities like L.A., where there isn't a right to shelter, it's the reverse. About 10 percent of those experiencing homelessness are living in shelter, and about 90 percent, tens of thousands, are living unsheltered. But even in New York, where we have the right, people are saying, I don't want to exercise that right, not the way it's being offered to me. And so our approach at BRC and our approach in New York is seeing our clients not as public nuisances, though I know that some do, but really as customers waiting to be served for whom the opportunities or the right model hasn't yet been created. And, and our approach, you know, something I heard you say some time ago, is in order to achieve progress, we need to recognize what works so that we can do more of, of what makes sense. And so, you know, rather than take an approach of, oh, there's shelter, and if you don't want to take it, the problem is you, the customer, not me, the provider, but to say it's incumbent on us as policymakers and as service providers to know our client as well as we can and to give them what they're asking for within reason. And so 15 years ago at BRC, with the support of Mayor Bloomberg, we created a new model called the Safe Haven that really kind of turned the model of shelter upside down and said, rather than create criteria in order for you to get the benefit, a quid pro quo, you have to demonstrate your worthiness before we help you had been the model. We said, you know what? We want you to come in. We want you to come in so bad. We'll pretty much let you come in on any terms because we believe if you come in, you'll do better than if we leave you out on the street. And so people did begin to come because we pretty much removed any criteria of accessibility other than no violence. It's got to be safe. You've got to be, can't harm yourself and you can't harm others. Muzzy's using a lot of social services terminology there, which I love. One of them is customers, and I like that a lot. But you do acknowledge that sometimes customers can be difficult and hard to please no matter how how hard you try. And I'm not going to get into that too much, but I did want to make sure I, when you have someone on the sidewalk on some street in New York and one of your outreach workers workers. approaches them, what is that dialogue and when does it go well and when does it not go so well? Because that's what people are thinking as they see people on the streets. What, What happens when people talk to them and say, well, why don't you try this other thing. Could you just tell us what that dialogue is like in two cases, good and bad? Yeah, it's a great question. And the fundamental goal of that dialogue is to build a relationship, right? I mean, I I taught my kids about stranger danger, right? If a stranger comes up to you, you know, and just says, hey, you know, let me take you for a ride someplace and I'll get you a treat. (laughs) Run away. Yeah, yeah. And my, you know, my kids, they're, you know, now adults, but, you know, they were generally thought well of other people. The folks that we're seeing on the street have usually had a lot of experiences. They've been institutionalized, they've been hospitalized, they've been incarcerated because for so long our criminal justice system was our mental health system, but not really the best way to deliver that service, not the right environment. So we've criminalized disease, we've criminalized illness, and we've made a lot of progress moving away from that, which parenthetically is one of the reasons we're seeing more people. It's not that there is so much more homelessness, and I'm speaking pre-pandemic, and economic turmoil that came from it. I'm saying that if we've stopped arresting people because they're sick, if we stop criminalizing them just because they were poor, then they're not going to be in places where we can't see them. And if they have no homes, they're going to be places where they are. So to that conversation, you know, I go up and I say, you know, to 
to somebody sitting down on the street or in the subway, hey, you doing all right? You know, I'm Muzzy, I'm, I'm with BRC, and is there anything I can do for you? Not what some might think is you don't belong here. You are home. We don't tell people they're homeless, they know. We don't tell addicts they're addicts, they know. We don't tell people who are sick that they're sick, they know. Rather, we say, we can help you if you'll allow us to try. And usually the first conversation, and I would put this in the framework of a good outcome, right? But what an outside observer might say, that didn't work, is they tell us just where to go, right? And I don't think I can say that on the air. But we do what they ask. You know, we take notes, we assess, we always approach in teams of two. Usually one person is having the conversation, one person is making mental notes and observing and also getting a lay of the land and seeing how well they are, you know, are they, are they clean? Are their shoes okay? Uh, feet are a precious commodity when you're homeless because that is the way you navigate. And so looking for all those telltale signs, how many bags they have, are they addressed appropriately for the climate? And we'll keep coming back. And when we come back the next time, it might be the next day, it might be a few days later, it might be the next shift because we're going 24-7. So based on that assessment, we'll figure how often do we need to go back, how vulnerable are they, as well as the environment. Are they indoors? Are they outside? Is it appropriate to the weather? We'll come back, hey, didn't I tell you to leave me alone? And didn't we do just that? So ask us for something harder. What is it you want? Oh, you want me to get out of here? No, I'm not here to get you out of here because they know and I know that short of a few exceptional situations, they legally can be where they are. So what do you want? Well, I want to see a doctor. Fine, let's do it. I need to get help with my public assistance case got closed, my welfare case got closed. I can't get my prescriptions anymore for my medication. All right, let's work on that. That's what I mean about serving the customer. So while the goal is to get somebody who's sleeping in a, in a place where people shouldn't sleep to sleeping in a place where they should and they can and they'll be healthy and stable, it starts by building that bridge of trust that we are here to enable you to be the person you want to be. And if you want us to work on your benefits first or get you to a doctor first, that's what we'll do because that's how we build the trust. And ultimately, those efforts, and it may take 20, 30, 40 conversations, sometimes over weeks, sometimes over months, sometimes over years, that will eventually lead to somebody coming in. Okay. So let's say that the one of the answers to your questions or two is, I would really like a hot meal and a place to sleep. Let's, that could happen, right? I mean, it does, may not Absolutely. happen in the first, it could happen in the first conversation. It may not happen until the 50th Absolutely. conversation. But those are two essential needs of people that they might say when asked, what, what do you need? And of course, your outreach specialists have an answer for that. Isn't that right? That's right. Tell us, let's assume that's what they say and they're willing to go where you're going to take them. What would happen in the next hour and a half or two hours? Well, we're going we're gonna to first figure out, depending on where they want to go, we're going to find a little information about them because we want to make sure that the place that we're taking them can support them. So we may ask, and they may share or they may not, about whether or not they've ever used medication. And our staff are trained to know different medications and what they may be used for because people may not know their diagnosis, but they may know what pills they're supposed to take. And so we want to make sure that we're taking people to a place that can continue to serve them. We obviously want to make sure that a bed is available, that the place may exist as a program, but there may not be any beds available that day. So again, because we have a right to shelter, we always have a shelter bed, but we may want to bring somebody to a different kind. We may want to bring somebody to 
detox, but we want to check that their insurance, usually Medicaid through a managed care organization, will allow them to go to a certain provider that that, you know, hasn't been uh, blocked. And if it has been blocked, to then unblock it. So it may take a little time. Our goal will be then to kind of a body in motion stays in motion when we've got that motivation is to get that person in the van or to get that person to our office. And so we can be doing these things again. Why we have two people is we're taking the information, we're making the calls, we're finding out so that we're getting you to a place. Now, usually when we go out, we have a good sense. We have a list of what beds are available on that shift among all the different kind of models, the substance beds that are available, the mental health beds that are available, the shelter beds that are available. We may even take somebody straight to housing. We may have been working with them for a while and, and have a housing application. And it's not, it's, it's unusual, but not unheard of that somebody over time will go straight to their own apartment. And so all of those things are happening. We're gathering information. It's not any port in a storm for any person. You know, the people that we work with are, are so varied in their, their needs. The, the shapes of the pegs, if you will, are so varied and the holes out there to fit folks into are so varied that it's really about trying to find the right match. Because if we can make a good match, it may not be perfect, but if we can make a good match, and this is, you know, it's not about the effort, it's about the impact. And so the goal is not, oh, we got somebody off the street today. The goal is we got them to a place that works for them where they're likely to stay off the street. That is critical. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one more question on this dialogue thing. So I don't know if you saw, I think a couple months ago, the Times did a, the New York Times did a deep dive on people that are sleeping in the subways during COVID. Mm. And so disappointed with that article. Oh, God, Buzzy, it was terrible. But we won't get to that. But one of my little pet peeves is that they don't really explore very much what really is going on in the head or the mind of the person they're writing about. And or they don't pursue what they're saying to find out. And I know that you're not going to like this, Muzzy, but whether it's true or not. And so that's one of my questions. When the Times says, or any journalist says, single individuals on the streets will not go into shelter because the shelters are overwhelmingly unsafe, how do you respond? Or to when that? candidates running for public office say that. Well, yes. Okay. You're right. Exactly. I am infuriated. I am infuriated. So let's start with the latter. All right. There are good and bad shelters. And partly, you know, like I said at the beginning, or I, I hope I said, yeah. the real reason that homelessness is as systemic, as pervasive as it is, is a systems failure, right? If that Harper's article was as true today, you read it today, and you would think you were reading about the present tense. With all that we've learned, with all that's changed in terms of pharmacology for mental illness, with understanding of substance use, with the change in our criminal justice system and our welfare systems. I mean, that article was before LBJ's Great Society, okay? So we, uh, so much has changed since then, and yet that article would read like it is true today. There are good shelters and there are bad shelters. Shelters, and unfortunately, we don't, in government, sadly, not nearly enough, reward the high performers and fire the poor performers. You know, I hire people all the time thinking they can do a job, and usually we get it right. But every now and then we don't. And it doesn't make you a bad person, Robert, that it didn't work out for you at BRC. It just means that 
you know, maybe AEI would be a better place yeah, yeah. than being a frontline homeless outreach worker, yeah, right? right? But we're not gonna we're not gonna carry you. And so what we don't have is a system that is sufficiently, and we talk about this in the book, that we have to have data-driven strategies. The data exists, government collects data up the wazoo, but it doesn't always use that to make decisions about how to best serve their customers. And so, you know, one of the things that we track and all shelters are tracked on is what percent of the people they serve achieve a positive outcome, moving to a better level of care. It might be housing, it might be residential treatment, whatever. How quickly can they accomplish that? What's the length of stay? What's the throughput? And what is the recidivism rate of people coming back? Did you do it too fast that they weren't really ready for it and they become homeless again? And I'm proud that BRC shelters are consistently in the top quartile of that. And when they aren't, we know it and we look at fixing it. But we do that because we're motivated. We're not incentivized. Well, just just um, for, there's no threat of losing our contract. Yeah, but just so we're clear, before we get to the book, I do want just give our audience the size of BRC, the number of beds, your sure. capacity every uh, night, how yeah. many people you so, serve, and then we'll come to the to the New York Times. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Article which w- was so frustrating. So we have about three thousand transitional beds and uh, about a thousand units of permanent housing, mostly supportive housing, meaning housing with services but with less structure and more autonomy and a lease and you pay rent. Right. And then we have some low-income housing for people who work because we, we do a lot of mental health services, addiction services, also employment services. We're giving the people the tools for their success. We're moving them through quickly because if we can move people through beds to positive outcomes with low rates of recidivism faster, then we don't need to open more shelters because we're getting more turnover in the shelters we have. And that's what excellent shelters do. And to do that, they have to be safe. And if they create an environment of safe, then people behave appropriately in them because they feel safe. They don't feel threatened and that they've got to protect themselves. And so creating environments that are with dignity, that are clean, that are safe. We cook our own food. We clean our own bathrooms because even that kind of stuff sends a message. If you went on vacation and you showed up in a hotel, which one day hopefully we can all do again, and the bed wasn't made and the toilet was dirty and there was the place was a mess and the food tasted horrible, you check out. Right. And so no surprise that our clients, our customers are discerning. So yes, there are unsafe shelters, but it doesn't, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't a square. Not all shelters are unsafe. And to say that they are does a disservice. And similarly, the New York Times article, which led with the headline that, that individuals who were sleeping on the subway lost their refuge Subways should not be a refuge. Yeah. That they have to be is, again, our failure, not our clients' failure. What we did during the pandemic when the New York City subways closed for the first time since they opened in the early 1900s was we were out there every morning as they closed, but we said the only way we can do this work is it's not our mission to shuffle people out of the subways and onto the street. This is an opportunity to help them go where they want to go. And we at BRC alone opened over 500 what we call stabilization beds, private and semi-private rooms, and people came. But more significantly, like I said before, they have stayed at higher rates of stability. And these are people who had been sleeping on the subways for years, finally came in, partly because they knew they had to leave the subways, but most significantly, they came in because they had an inn to come to. And that that story didn't tell that 
did a disservice to our workers, did a disservice to our clients, and did a disservice to New Yorkers who asked in the chat section of the website, why isn't anything being done? Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Don't read those. Don't read those. Do, Muzzy, a little advice. Do don't before. read, the, don't no, read especially the New York before. Times chat section. But, you know, it's just not uh, worth the time. I'm sorry. But Muzzy, just on the transitional beds, 300 transitional beds, those are the ones that someone who you have that conversation with could go to if the conversation goes well and you get them into to a bed. Yeah. What's your occupation rate on, the, on any given night? Our occupancy rate is somewhere between 98 and 100%. So, really? Wow. So, so, well, I wasn't going to say it, but, but I wanted to say if I was one of those persons you saw today at two o'clock in the afternoon on, on Bowery and I needed to be in a bed, could you get me in a bed? Not as easily as I'd like it to be. Okay. We have made some progress again in systems change to say, look, we are professionals out there. If we see Robert and we think that this bed is the right strategy for Robert, Let's not have a whole bunch of central, centralized controls, you know, that government has always had. And I'm partly responsible. I was a bureaucrat. Yeah. You were a bureaucrat. Yeah, 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 we yeah. think we know better yeah. than the people we hire. And, and we tie their hands behind their back more than we should. If we hire them to be professionals to do the job. Let's let them do the job. If they data shows they're not getting it done, then let's fire them which sometimes government is reluctant to do. And so it instead takes control. But I think if we corrected the systems, and so more and more, particularly during the pandemic, we've been able to move people directly into the bed and actually you know, made it a more efficient and more effective process. And that's why people are coming in. That is a really hopeful sign that I hope continues past pandemic, that the flexibility we've been given to get people in and safe is a flexibility we continue to have moving forward and then to provide those services. So I'll just quickly give you an example, a data-driven one. So we have a wonderful workforce development program that we use philanthropic dollars for because it's not part of our shelter contract that we leverage in. So the shelter will cost several million dollars. We'll add a few hundred thousand dollars on the workforce development. So it costs us about $3,000 per individual in that program. It's voluntary, but 95% of the clients volunteer for it because they want it, speaking of motivation. And the average length of stay in those shelters for those individuals in that program is 135 days less than the average in the shelter system writ large, right? And on an average cost of $100 a day, that's a $13,500 savings because we're getting that person out faster, turning that bed over for a new person, meaning we don't have to build a new bed, which would cost even more. And so the $3,000 investment in the enhanced services leverages a $13,500 savings to the system, to the city, never mind the wellness of that individual and a little coin in their pocket because they're working. And that's why I say there are great shelters and we need to have some. Shelters are places where, when they're done right, people go to heal and transform. And the notion that we would get rid of shelters is like saying, let's get rid of hospitals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one wants anyone to be sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think that if we get rid of hospitals, we'll have, therefore, no one will be sick. So that's a little picture of New York. Now, you got interested in writing this book about 10 global cities. And what did you learn from that? What was a finding outside of your own experience from one of these other cities? that surprised you or, or that you thought was particularly 
helpful to the public policy discussion. Well, what was the most surprising, Robert, was that the cities aren't that different. I mean, they're different culturally. They're different demographically. You know, some are very diverse in their demography. Some are very homogenous. In some cases, it was predominantly due to economic forces. In other cases, it was due more to substances. But the fact that cities across the country and around the globe are seeing this same crisis in good times and bad. I mean, one of the fascinating things about homelessness data is that in good economic times and bad, we have homelessness. It doesn't really flex the same way consistent with those economic factors. So it really is a kind of most significantly urban, though there's rural homelessness too. It's just not as visible. It's lean-tos in the woods or RVs that people are living in permanently or their cars in parking lots and whatever, nomad land is a great flick that I encourage people to see. But what was most surprising is how common it is and how much the frustration is that leads to sadly, and this is hopefully what our conversation will help people achieve, there is an anger at government and and the way it often manifests itself is an anger at the person experiencing homelessness as if it is their fault they're in the situation they're in. Now, I'm not saying people don't make bad choices. I've made my fair share. It hasn't led me to living on the street because I have a support system. I have an education. I have a family that, whose bridges I haven't completely burned yet. And so I have places to turn to. But if you don't have that, and two of the most common, and again, not unique in New York or America, and I write about this in the book, is the failure of the home and educational system. And so the two places that for a young person should be the safest, home and school, the most supportive, home and school, the greatest love, home and school, that what is so common among the adults experiencing homelessness is those two places that should be safe or anything but that for them. They were victims of physical and psychological abuse in home. They, as a result, acted out in that and were expelled from school. The notion that our schools can say, we can't educate you is not a failure of the child, it's a failure of the system. And I'm not saying it isn't hard and that we shouldn't create special models, but to discard children, which is effectively what happens, it should be no surprise that we then have homelessness. And that's what we're seeing across our country and around the world. But just to push back a little bit on that, the individuals who we're talking about who've had difficult experiences with systems, as you say, and home and school being the two principal systems, or could also be the healthcare system or the criminal justice system. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, yes. And I want to say this carefully, put it this way, one system that isn't the cause of their situation necessarily, because you didn't list it yet, and I don't think you would, is the American economic system. Because you you also said it didn't go up or down based on how well the economy was going. Or the I hate to use this word, the capitalist free market system or the employer world. In other words, these are not the refuge. These are not people that are experiencing economic hardship because we're in the midst of a depression or our economic system isn't providing employment opportunities. They've had difficulties with systems that are are not those. Am I right about that? I mean, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I mean, the, pan- the pandemic is obviously... The pandemic is an exception, yes. And we're yeah. going to go to that in a minute. But in normal times, yeah. these are yeah, not... I mean, this is and to my, to my earlier observation that if they don't finish high school, their ability to compete 
for employment without even having a high school diploma or a GED is going to be a lot harder. And having the social, you know, we do our workforce development stuff is fundamentally focused on soft skills, taking instruction from a supervisor because you've dropped out of school. So you're not used to taking instruction. You're not used to raising your hand and saying, I'm not sure I understand. Could you explain that again before I get behind the wheel of a $100,000 piece or operate a $100,000 piece of equipment? And so explaining to people that saying, I don't know, is a responsible way to approach it. So they have not been, to the extent that it is an economic issue, which it is in part, it is less a failure of the economic system than a failure of the educational system to prepare people for work. But it's also, yeah, or a failure of the criminal justice system to deal with someone with a minor infraction. To prepare them for work while they're incarcerated. Or, or the substance abuse. So now let's talk about COVID. Phoebe? Yeah. So, I mean, how have you seen the pandemic affect, I guess, I mean, homelessness in New York City, but also how does it change the challenges of, of helping the homeless? And I mean, I'm personally curious also what the process will be like to try to get vaccines to homeless people. You know, what have you experienced on, on those lines? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that's happened in New York, again, starting with a single adult population, both those in shelter and those living unsheltered, was a pivot fairly early, not immediately, into hotels. And while I recognized the, the need for that and, and generally was supportive, I also knew in, in terms of managing a very, and still, at, you know, back in, in May and June, a lot we didn't know about how the disease was transmitted, was it on surfaces, et cetera, et cetera. I also knew at the same time that the singles population, which is predominantly dealing with behavioral health issues, mental illness, substance use, and usually the two combined, that the isolation was going to be an overwhelming challenge, and it proved to be. And, you know, just as there's been a appropriately long effort to advocate for the limited use of solitary confinement, in our correctional facilities, we were basically, though, not locking people in their room, basically saying, stay in your room. You know, we pivoted to telehealth. We got everybody phones so that they could video conference with their case managers, with their, we brought staff on site, but we were very concerned. And, and we did see people struggle with their mental health, who already had mental health struggles in private rooms. We didn't do that with all our places. Some of them were large enough that we could the new term is de-densify, so we you know, removed every other bed, right, social distancing in the dorms, and we didn't see any higher rate of incidence of infection where we de-densified than where we moved to hotels. Now, again, that's hindsight, right? So we've learned a lot, and I think we are at a point that we can begin to talk about as people get vaccinated, and we're doing that, and so we're at about 10%. I would say, of the population, maybe a little bit higher in our shelters has been vaccinated. That's been a variety of factors, including a very chaotic and over-micromanaged vaccine distribution protocol that your colleague Scott Gottlieb has spoken eloquently about how we've made it so hard to get people vaccinated, we should make it a lot easier. But so fundamentally, it's been that transition that has dramatically reduced the, the prevalence of COVID. It's been hugely successful. And then similarly, as I was mentioning before, in terms of folks living unsheltered, be it on the subways or on the street, was standing up over a thousand beds in the city, over 500 of them BRC alone, in private and semi-private rooms, 
YMCAs, hotels, and what have you, and moving people in. Now, really important, and we saw this because we've been, all the cities in the book have been talking, you know, regularly through the pandemic. We all felt, and I advocated for this strongly in New York, and, and, and the city did respond to their credit, moving people to rooms without adequate staffing and services to support them for all the reasons I just spoke of would have been a disaster. And so we got additional staff. We do wellness checks in the rooms every half hour to make sure people aren't decompensating, aren't overdosing, and are just healthy and safe. And that is critical. So it's both changing the physical environment and then enhancing the staff so that we make sure that in the physical environment, the other issues that our clients so often contend with, that they're safe. So on the how 10 global cities take on homelessness, University of California Press coming out in May. You've used a term, and I think it's used in the book as well, data-driven operations. Could you just tell us what that means? Tell our listeners what that means. Does that mean that, you know, that we talked about that dialogue between two workers and a person living on the street. Doesn't that mean that they are immediately accessing a data set to see if this person is where this person has already been, what contact they've had with other systems, what their experience has been, so that you don't start fresh with every initial conversation. Or maybe I'm wrong. What does that mean? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So outreach workers are in the field with databases, with laptops, with smartphones, looking up people. So if we're having a conversation, we're trying to do it in a way that is fluid. And then once we get the person engaged and interested and willing to consider their options, then we take out the database and we say, okay, we're going to look up and see what's available for you. We're explaining what we're doing. And so we're both collecting data and entering it on each encounter. So we're updating a person's profile in the database so that, and this is accessible, not just to any BRC outreach worker, but it's accessible to any outreach worker from any organization that's doing the work. So that as people move, right, transience is the nature of homelessness is they may, we may encounter them at the Coney Island subway station on Monday morning, and they may be sleeping on the steps of a church on Fifth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan on Tuesday night, and there may be a very different outreach worker, very different organization doing it. All that is an essential database. So first and foremost, it is about data collection so that to your observation correctly, we're not starting all over and being inefficient and, and pissing off the customer. I mean, yeah. you know, like how many times are you going to ask me this question, like right. trying to register for a COVID vaccine, and it's like you got to repopulate. Yeah, yeah, better get your input in fast or they'll cut you off. piss you off, right? But then the other part is that we're looking to see patterns and trends as well. So from my perspective, as a manager, as an executive, and with all my team, it's where, where are we seeing the highest rate of placement? Where are we seeing the lowest rate of recidivism? You know, one of the things I am, I am looking at right now is of all the people that we've been placing during the pandemic, you know, how many of them have stayed and how many of them keep going back to the subway? And are we making the right decisions or the wrong decisions for them because they seem to be voting with their feet? And that will help us decide or help the city decide about what do we need more of? What do we need less of? Who's getting it done well? Who isn't, it, who isn't doing it well? So that we're, we're, we're measuring the effort, we're measuring the activity, right? The inputs and the outputs and all the activities in between with those inputs that create those outputs. But then what we also want to see is impact. What is the outcome and which of these activities are generating higher rates of success? And what is that telling us? And how do we try to replicate that? And so 
all of that data on a day-to-day basis to help the frontline worker working with the client customer, and then to help the organizations and the systems achieve systems change and systems improvement. And I want to be be clear that this is not, I hope these are data systems that are not limited to the homeless community or the homeless system. That if you're talking to me, for instance, if it's Robert Doerr with my, whatever, my name, you put my name in, your workers are able to see my interaction with the Medicaid system or the SNAP program system or the SSDI or SSI system. Am I right about that? Or are these systems integrated? Oh, only so much, Robert. Only so much, <laughs> sadly. It's so a big deal. It's systems. a big deal. It'd be really helpful to know those things. Yeah. I mean, some systems we have access to better than others, and some systems talk to each other better than others. And one of the business strategies at BRC, right, we're a not-for-profit, but we are a business, is we're a very diversified business. So we have we work in the mental health system, we work in the healthcare system, we work in the criminal justice system, we work in the homeless services system and the welfare system. So we have access to all those databases. Organizations that aren't that diversified in the work may not have access. Or a city, or a city government or state by. government doesn't allow access to well, that's not-for-profit saying, right? partners. Well, yeah. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. So, for example, we don't have access. We have a humongous public hospital system in New York. So it's part of the city government. We don't have access to that and they don't have access to us. So if you are a doctor planning to discharge a patient in the emergency room, unless you know, and we're there probably, that BRC brought in this client from outreach, because we'll come back and pick them up and get them to the next step. It's like, all right, time to discharge Robert. You know, he doesn't need to be admitted. We we fixed him up. He's okay. You know, he slipped and fell and needed stitches and now he's okay. And out he goes and right back. And those are, those are such great opportunities yeah. that too often are missed because the systems don't communicate to each other, even though we would be responsive. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that is a theme of any evaluation of successful cities on this issue is the extent to which they share data and gather data and keep data and manage data so they can give better service to the people that they see that isn't just starts all over. But one system I was curious about, Muzzy, is the SSI, SSDI system. Mm -hmm. We're talking about single individuals. When we first started this conversation, you mentioned welfare benefits, which was, Mm -hmm. I think, a nice comment toward me because I used to run those benefit systems in New York City. But often they are related to single parents with with children. SSI and SSDI often intersects more frequently with street homeless population of single individuals who have Mm -hmm. mental health or some other potential disability. What is the extent of SSI and SSDI in the street homeless population? A fair number are receiving it. I mean, one of the, again, you know, as we spoke earlier, there's, there's so many different subsets within the population. There are people who get a check every month who go to the main post office, have a PO box or have a place to pick it up. And when that check comes in, they cash it. And for a few days or a week or two, they may rent a room someplace. And then when the money runs out, they hit the streets and, you know, until the month is over and starts again. So a fair number have it. And we're very good at helping folks who don't have it navigate it because so much of what they can benefit from that income stream will support, including permanent supportive housing. We haven't talked a lot about housing. The housing is, is essential to this and there's simply not enough of it. And so housing alone is not the fix that too many 
say it's all about it. There was just housing, housing, housing. We need so much more than that. But we can't do this without housing. And and SSI are ways to pay for the housing that landlords will accept and definitely nonprofits who build this kind of housing who are benevolent and willing to handle more challenging individuals. Yes, that's the more permanent housing. But I'm sorry if I didn't know this. In order to get into one of your transitional beds for emergency housing, you don't need, you don't, you don't need to show that you have SSI no. or SSDI. But like I said, our goal is not to get you in. Our goal is to get you to keep moving forward. Yes. I, so I, you do not need any benefits to get in. But once you're in, we want to move you to the next step. And that's where you may need those benefits. And so, again, you know, having a place for people to go, a good shelter or a safe haven where people can begin to work on those things. But that said, if people have those benefits in place, as I mentioned before, it's possible. And if they're stable in their mental health, they're taking their medication, they're abstaining from substances, we could, in a not too long period of time, several months, maybe move somebody who said, you know what, I got my benefits, I'm stable, just help me do an apartment application, and I'll stay here until then. We're not going to tell you no, we're going to work with you for that. Because again, it's giving you the agency to determine your path. And as long as that is a positive direction, we're going to work with you the way you want to be worked with. But yes, you do not need benefits to come yeah, and, and, there, and, there and, is, It and, is a barrier-free system in that sense. And you don't, does you SSA, don't I can't remember, does SSA have caseworkers who are inquiring as to recipients who aren't taking advantage of that source of income to pay for housing? Good question. I don't know the answer. I don't think, I don't think they do. Federally I, I, provided I think benefits. I looking for people who could be getting a benefit and, and how to give it to them. Yeah. Right. Well, this has been good. Anything else, Phoebe? Anything you want to make sure you say, Muzzy, that you didn't get to say about the book or about what you learned or what you want our listeners to know about the world that you work in and do such great work in? I mean, I think I would just say that there is reason to be hopeful. And yet, let's not expect any quick fixes. You know, to me, homelessness is a situation that a person experiences. It doesn't define a person. And what I have the privilege of seeing every day is extraordinary people overcoming incredible adversities. And with that sense of agency moving forward and accomplishing great things because of what we provide them. And if we can see the resiliency and the potential in each individual out there and demand of our systems to do the things they should be doing and recognize that there's no such thing as a entirely bad you know, shelter, that we have to have a full array of services and that what communities should should be demanding is not don't you know build it somewhere just not where I live is to demand that whatever we build wherever we build it that the standard be one of excellence because it exists we've got the data to prove it we see it happening in cities around the world and you know that is I think the path forward that we recognize progress we replicate progress we demand accountability and people's lives will be better. Right. We talked about the front door, that original interaction between the two caseworkers or the two outreach workers mm-hmm. and the potential customer of housing services. Just to be clear, the back door happens too, which is that someone comes in, gets whatever services they need from a well-run shelter system, finds a connection to income that allows them to afford more stable housing. They get their medication straightened out if that's what they need. Mm-hmm. They get a job. It happens all the time. It just takes, right. that's what Muzzy's saying, is that yeah. we know we can do it, and we do it all the time. But And uh, we've all seen people in our own lives who've, yes, who've exactly. navigated from challenge and adversity to overcome. And not everyone does. Yeah. I don't get into this thinking 
any more than a doctor gets into medicine thinking we'll save everybody. But if we do it right, if we do it well, if we do it with data and accountability, and we do it with love. I mean, I cannot underestimate the extraordinary love our staff, who are extraordinary people themselves, show and embrace with, with our clients to see through all the pain and suffering and see the person inside. It is truly grace. Thank you a lot, Mazi. Thanks for what you do, and thanks for being on Banter. My pleasure. It was great to catch up with you. Stay well and stay safe. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.